0: Hello and welcome to Cage Club, two fans, 74 movies, one cage. This is episode 36, Bringing Out the Dead from 1999, directed by Martin Scorsese. I'm Mike Manzi.
1: I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today, we have a very, very special guest. Our guest today is Tobin Addington, film professor, someone who taught both me and Mike, or Mike and me, I guess, grammatically <laughs> didn't teach us very well. Man. I didn't teach you well. <laughs> uh, he taught us both a lot about movies, and about making movies, and about watching movies with a close eye, so a lot of the things that we've probably talked about in Cage Club have come through his teachings, either directly or indirectly, so welcome and thank you, Tobin Addington.
2: Well, thank you. It must be why I like the podcast so much. You're just just repeating back to me what I've told you. No, I I love it. This is so much fun. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for for
1: inviting me. Well, thank you for being here. And it might be kind of an obvious question because of who's involved with the movie, but why did you want to do Bringing Out the Dead? What drew you to this movie of all the many Cage movies that we could have talked about?
2: Yeah, when you asked
1: me uh, if there's
2: one I'd like to do, and you said only a few had been taken, I, I you know, my the mind sort of runs wild because there's so many different cages, right? As you, and you, as you, as you guys have gone through so many different cage eras, the reason I wanted to talk about bringing out the dead was because it's the one of the first movies I saw, uh, first Scorsese movies that I saw in the theater when I knew who Scorsese was, and okay. I remember having very specific feelings about it. When I came out, and I wanted, but I had not seen it since '99. Part of it was wanting to revisit it, and the things that I, I remembered, very few things about it. I remembered one or two shots. I remember that um, you know Mark, uh, uh, Tom Sizemore and Mark Anthony were in it, and I and I, I had the soundtrack. I remember listening to um, "What's the Frequency, Kenneth." over and over again, because it was the only track on the disc that I, that I at the time liked enough to to listen to frequently. So anyway, I remember just a a few bare bones uh, and wanted to, and wanted to sort of um, check it out again. So I thought this was a a good opportunity.
1: Well, I think it's a very good opportunity. This is one movie along with The Rock that I'd seen before we did Cage Club, but I've greatly, greatly appreciated both of those way more now that we're going through chronologically, like neither Mm. sort of hit me the first time, but with both films the second time through, I just really love it. The other important thing that I want to bring up right up front is that this is also starring Patricia Arquette, who Nicolas Cage was married to at the time. I mean, it's happened a bunch in film history, but not that often. So whenever it happens that a couple is on screen, it's kind of a cool little thing to point out.
0: It's not usually a very good track record when couples act no. with each other on camera as well, and this may be one of the few exceptions where they've seemed to pull it off.
2: Well, we may have uh, something to discuss about that, because I'm not well, sure I'm entirely I you agree. I said, I said <laughs> but, pull uh, it off.
0: I didn't say pull it off well. <laughs>
2: It, one of the, one of the only other things I remember about this movie is um, remembering some trivia from the time that um, there's a movie called Stigmata that Patricia Arquette was in with Gabriel Byrne. Did either of you ever see this movie?
1: I have seen part of it. I think
2: for whatever reason, I loved that movie when I when it came out, and I remember learning it, it was released as they were shooting this movie, and that um, they had a, a little party because it debuted at number one when they were shooting Bringing Out the Dead, and that was that. That is the last thing I remember about this movie. <laughs>
0: she have black hair in that? Is that with her roots growing out in this film?
2: <laughs> no, they were they were blonde hair, and it's I, I have not seen it since. I remember liking it at the time, but it has not held up for other people, so I'm not entirely sure that I want to revisit it.
1: Patricia Arquette is not necessarily the greatest actress of all time. I mean, she did win a Best Actress Oscar last year for Boyhood. No matter what you want to say about her, whether it's about this movie or not, she will forever and always be Alabama Worley to me, and she is my number one, I think probably my number one movie crush of all time, that character so I just love her in everything she's in full stop (laughs) end of story I just love her
2: you can't help but root for her I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here but yeah you can't help but root for her in almost anything she's in right like she there's a there's something really appealing about her as a the human being behind the behind the role and and but I think that in some cases she's it's dictated by the kind of material she's she's been given Uh,
0: yeah and I actually think you know her performance is probably better off for her husband being in the film with her to some degree Mm -hmm. but again we'll, we'll get. Into it.
1: This movie is written by Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver, and he will write and direct Dying of the Light, which is a really recent Cage movie. I think it came out last year, probably straight to videos. This is the first time, but not the last time, that he will work with Cage. This also reunites Cage with a couple of his former co-stars, brings back John Goodman from Raising Arizona, brings back Ving Raines from Con Air and Kiss of Death. And once again, like a little bit of a a theme popping up here in Cage Club, this was adapted from a novel. We haven't really had a good track record in terms of reading the source material. (laughs) I'd read the Sailor and Lula stories from Wild at Heart, but that's pretty much it. Have either of you read or are you familiar with the book this is based on?
0: I am not, but... Just having watched some of the -the behind-the-scenes material and read up about the movie itself, found some information out about the novel, and it is based mostly on true events. The guy Nicolas Cage is portraying was a real EMS driver around New York City. I believe his stomping ground was Hell's Kitchen.
1: I think what works well about this adaptation there's like a through line you know with Patricia Arquette's father being hospitalized aside from that through line which sort of just gives the movie a beginning middle and end it's just kind of like a series of vignettes him with a different ambulance co-writer going out and taking care of people I personally feel that it works well as an adaptation I don't know how true it is to the source material but I think because there's so many different events they come together to tell a bigger story but because they're all separated and you can sort of be like jumble them up a little bit, I think it works well as an adaptation and better than other adaptations, most notably maybe Time to Kill.
2: It's a really interesting thing they've done with the structure here. It's explicitly Thursday and then Friday and then Saturday. They, they label each section of the of the film and he has a different uh, partner driving the ambulance with him each night. And I think that that's, that really helps when you have a more episodic structure the way this is, it helps orient us a little bit and maybe make up for not having a clear want that he's after in, in some kind of traditional screen screenwriting way. And also that it really does feel, you can feel some authenticity in the kind of events that he encounters, right? How, how crazy it must be it must have been to be in the in the early '90s, you know, early or pre-Giuliani era New York, having this kind of job on the streets must have been sort of a, a lunacy-making profession. And I think that really, that really does come across and feels very real here, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I think Scorsese's style definitely helps sell a lot of that too, as well. The heightened reality, the manicness of the actual paramedics, you know, just their point of view comes across or at least frank the main character is right from the get-go you know just you're thrown right into this insanity basically and you know i think the style just helps like sew together the randomness of some of the night as it goes along you know we just sort of jump from crime to crime or from event to event or accident here and there they're just like these little short sort of stops like along the way and they all add up to mean something but them on their own are just like these little complete like short stories almost
1: cage plays a guy named frank pierce who was a new york city paramedic who in his opening voiceover says that he's really good at his job and he kind of lays the groundwork like tobin was saying about the era and the time around like this came out in the late 90s but it says very clearly at the top like you know early 90s new york city that before the city started to get cleaned up craziness abounds everywhere that it sets a really clear tone for where we are What's going on and the kind of things that he's going to begin to encounter.
3: The night started out with a bang. A gunshot to the chest on a drug deal gone bad. All the elements were in place for a long weekend heat, humidity, moonlight. I was good at my job. There were periods where my hands moved with a speed and skill beyond me. But in the last year, I'd started to lose that control. Things had turned bad. I hadn't saved anyone in months. I just needed a few slow
0: nights, followed by a couple of days off. Uh, what I found kind of interesting about the setting of this is this is pretty much when Vampire's Kiss takes place, and yeah. as they're driving around the streets at night, I'm like, oh, any one of these guys could be like Peter Lowe from Vampire's <laughs> Kiss, you know, a, a mentally deranged guy yelling at himself or you know threatening people that aren't there.
2: You do sort of keep waiting for somebody with sharpened teeth, with shaved teeth, to come into the <laughs> come into the scene, and it's interesting too. You mentioned that his sort of the manic filmmaking style that he's using, if. Kate Cage has a couple of different modes, one of them being manic and one of them being more hangdog. This is a much more hangdog Cage than you get in some of his other movies, but the style of the film sort of takes his manic energy. It's almost like Scorsese is matching what we know of Cage's energy in the style that he's using, especially in the driving scenes, to bring that across. I think that's a really good
1: point, especially in terms of, like, I don't even know how to describe like the editing at some points. It's almost, like, blurred. Like, there's just... There's no other way to describe it. Like, there's just, like, an energy there. It's, like, a unique way of shooting. You don't even see them going sometimes. The craziest it ever gets, like, the most ramped up you ever feel, is when they just sort of show Cage downshifting and upshifting and just (laughs) turning the wheel. And, like, he could be anywhere at any point. It's just, like, possessed by the city, almost, to be this crazed driver. And it has at the very beginning you
2: sort of blown out white light a couple of the early shots as they're getting in and out of the of the ambulance and the light sort of bounces off their white uniforms so brightly it almost blurs a little bit and he uses that effect a lot it reminds me of you know if you've been up for a day or two and you know squinting into the into the light and and the way that the you know the lights coming down in your are more bright than feel more bright than maybe they are it has that sort of all that sort of energy he's using all the techniques right the sound the the image the cutting in in sort of glorious fashion here.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is one of Scorsese's more highly experimental films, you know. Um, He had just come off Kundun. He's going to go make Gangs of New York soon, which are both just pretty much like old school epic kind of films in a way, like type of filmmaking. And it seems like he's cutting loose here, you know, and he's really just trying to sow his oats or just, you know, find new ways of shooting things and doing stuff. He's using multiple speeds to shoot these guys. And I I feel like he's almost doing natural born killers the right way, you know, the way (laughs) In the way that Oliver Stone sort of went nuts, like Scorsese's going nuts, but but he's doing it the right way to me. (laughs) You know, it just, none of it feels too much. And it's very interesting how... yeah, he, he's almost matching Nick Cage's energy, or at least his persona's energy, you know? So right. that's really interesting because it's like he's affected the world around him in a way. Like, you know, he's externalized, like, all of his emotion, and he's watching it in the city streets, and he sort of just gets to sit back and, and, and do that stoic expression. Uh, it's very interesting stuff.
1: Even though he's sort of tame in his actions throughout this movie, with a few exceptions, maybe, his inner Cage is the same kind of crazed, unbalanced, unsteady cage that we've come to know and expect. He says really early on that, you know, he's kind of haunted by these spirits. He's haunted by the people that he couldn't save, especially this one 18-year-old girl named Rose. And he talks about, like, how when he's on the job, when he gets called to an apartment, he's trying to save a guy, and he turns and expects the guy's spirit to be watching over him. And I was like, whoa, like that? Especially considering how close we are to City of Angels? Like, is he, is he, is he seeing a spirit and, like, Seth, his own self from that movie?
3: In the last year, I'd come to believe in such things as spirits leaving the body and not wanting to be put back. Spirits angry at the awkward places death had left them. I understood how crazy it was to think this way, but I was convinced that if I turned around, I'd see old man Burke standing at the window, watching, waiting for us to finish.
1: On the outside, he's normal, but on the inside, he's really tormented and a little bit crazed, haunted by these
0: visions. What's kind of nuts is when this movie starts, he's been doing this five years and he's already fried and burned out, barely going to keep it together throughout this movie. And and that to me is sort of his journey. Is he going to be able to keep it together this weekend or or is it going to be like the last weekend on the job for him and he's going to go completely nuts?
2: Yeah, you don't expect this movie to end well for him, do you? I mean, I mean, especially by about the middle point, you you wonder what what is this man going to go crazy, right? I mean, you're totally right, Joey. He has a it's his internal energy that's being manifested in the the way that the movie's made, you know. So it's just echoing for us off of off of his persona. But it's very much as he, this is a, this is a guy on the edge, right? This is a guy on the edge of sanity, on the edge of on the edge of sleep, and, and he and he has some some beautiful moments where he talks about what it feels like throughout the film, what it feels like, or has felt like in the past, to actually save somebody. And he, and he talks about it being a drug, right? He's after that drug. That's part of what he's he's hoping to find on these nights, is somebody to save so that he can get that, a hit of that again.
1: Like, it's kind of reminiscent, in terms of him wanting sleep and needing that hit, visually, in terms of the makeup and just sort of the way he looks, it sort of harkens back to leaving Las Vegas, that he's just like this haunted sort of ghost of a man. In Leaving Las Vegas, he needed his alcohol fix, and here, he just needs to save someone's life and also, I guess, kind of interesting timing, same year that Fight Club comes out, both about main characters who just are unable to sleep, and just sort of craving some kind of release in one way or another.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned that, too, because you guys know who was who Paul Schrader wrote the movie for, right? Edward Norton. That's right, who, yes. That's who he had in mind, right? So it's interesting that you make that connection. And also, it's hard for me to imagine Cage getting this movie not having had in Las Vegas.
0: He's definitely bringing a lot of that sort of addiction (laughs) acting to it, right? Like, you get the sense that he's jonesing for it the whole movie. And he says, at one point, something to the degree of, when you help people, you feel great, right? But I haven't helped anyone in six months, in fact. Everyone's been dying on me, so like, just imagine how I feel, right? He needs it worse than ever. He's down to his last bottle.
1: He almost kind of gets the release. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but the first person he goes to help is Patricia Arquette's father. Patricia Arquette plays Mary Berg, and he goes to save her father, who's having trouble breathing, undergoing cardiac arrest, and the guy is basically pronounced dead on the scene, but revived when, when they start playing Sinatra. You kind of think that like this might get him back on the right track in terms of he did sort of save a guy, but it doesn't necessarily play that way. The voiceover saying how he hasn't saved a guy in so long, and the guy dies on him, you think that's just another one on the pile, but he does save him. I guess it's not like a full recovery. I'm not sure. How do you think this semi-save helps him, or does it hurt him, or is it just sort of keep him neutral?
2: Ultimately, it's going to save him in su- to some degree because it brings her in connection with... Patricia Arquette's character which is the sort of as much of a redemption as he ends up having in the, in the movie what's what's interesting to me about this scene is that he it's it feels to me like he tells Mary as as he's doing CPR on the on the father who is being pronounced dead at the moment um, over the radio by by John Goodman who plays his partner Frank is doing CPR on the father on the floor and tells Patricia Arquette to put on some of the music that this that her father liked and to me at that moment felt like he was sort of just humoring her I wasn't sure as he asked it if he I thought maybe he was being cynical I I wasn't sure that he he really thought it was a trick that would work because he seems almost as surprised as anybody else is when the guy revives as the music plays.
0: And I had a kind of interesting sort of through line with this guy and Cage throughout the movie. It's like he keeps him on life support in a way, like Nick Cage's character is on life support too. So it's like if this guy, I don't know, I feel like as long as he knows this guy is in a room somewhere hanging on, even if they have to like revive him every hour, (laughs) it gives him like just like an extra kick if he needs it somehow. I'm not sure if that's how it should be interpreted but that's sort of how i saw it
1: so they bring patricia arquette's father to our lady of misery or they just call it misery it's this hospital it's like overcrowded and chaotic but it's the best hospital in the city it seems like or at least in that area they talk about how this is like heaven and bellevue is like hell cage again sort of like city of angels kind of an angel saving people bring to this hospital But here we meet we meet so many great characters like we meet the guy at the door Gris who never takes his sunglasses off all movie uh, (laughs) threatens a guy says like don't make me take my sunglasses off at you. We meet the receptionist basically her sole purpose in this movie I guess is a little bit of comedic relief everybody she's talking to she's like you just poisoned yourself with drugs like why should we help you like we meet all these nurses we meet the doctor. We meet uh, Noel, and what I like is that even though they're not really fully 100% fleshed out, we have a good sense of who each of these people are and what they're bringing to the movie. And this is not a case where
2: these characters are going to change over the course of the film, for the most part. These are all people who, every scene that we see them in, they they elaborate a little bit more. We learn a little little more about them, but they don't change. The triage nurse, the one who's telling them, you know, uh, (laughs) do you really expect us to to help you after you've been pumping your veins full of drugs or whatever she's saying to the next sort of hapless victim? She's one of my favorites. Exactly the kind of nurse you need at the front of an ER like this, right? Like you get dumped in, this is kind of, if Bellevue is hell, I don't... Want to see it because because uh, <laughs> this hospital this ER is is rough and having been to some ERs in New York not at this time of but later on you know in the 2000s uh, I can only imagine that this this does seem to be pretty close to to what it must have been like as crazy as that as that seems overcrowded and and all these actors as you say are just fantastic Aida Turturro as the nurse inside and the, doc, the guy who plays the doctor I don't know his name but that sort of exhausted sort of um, I can't believe I have to deal with this again uh, sort of after fact it's a whole world right this is a whole microcosm world here
0: yeah, I love the ER when we're getting here. It's it's very chaotic, and yet Scorsese is such a good director. He's able to you know set up and pay off everybody you need to know throughout the rest of the movie very quickly. It really gives the sense that they're a unit and they're like this living beast, and that the ER is alive and it's thriving and such. But here's where I'm also starting to remember how religious Scorsese is, and I'm getting Gates of Heaven right here. You know, you have Griss <laughs> sort of guarding the gates. You have have all these wounded or like dying people waiting to get in and then behind the doors like it's just everything is so matter of fact for these doctors it's such a shock when you get behind those doors for me you know there's there's really no compassion going on back there it's all very much like business. Is you know this is just the business you know Try and separate business from personal as much as you can. The last thing you want to do is get attached to anybody dying in there.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that they call it misery because the that, the name that's given and the name you see on the wall is Our Lady of Perpetual Mercy. And so if it's if it's meant to be heaven and then you get in there and and there is all this misery and and Mike, as you say, these for, for these doctors and these nurses, this is just daily life, right? Like this is just the job. This is this is just work. It just happens to be you know really high stakes. It's a it's a fascinating look behind that curtain. Um, there's also we haven't. Talk about john goodman yet who i think is amazing in this movie i think he's i think he brings such a a, a vitality and a, and a sense of humor to this movie i'm i'm loving him in these in these early scenes
0: You know, he brings a really great contrast to Cage in the opening moments of this film to help set up his character. So John Goodman, who's playing Larry, his current partner, he's able to let things go. He's not having, like, this crisis the same way Cage is, or at least that's what I'm getting from it. Like, he's sort of able to let it roll off his shoulder, like these doctors sort of treat it like a job and and separate it, and he has ideas to go start his own business and such. But but then, like, at one moment, like, we, we see him reach his breaking point. And it really doesn't, doesn't seem like that much of a point for him to break at. But it's just very interesting in those opening scenes, the contrast between him and Cage.
1: Here's a question that I don't know how to answer. Who of the three is your favorite Cage companion for the ambulance? Do you like Goodman the best or Bing Raines or Tom Sizemore?
2: That's such a good question, man. I mean, this, it's sort of, if the question is, who would I rather be partnered with? then the answer is John Goodman, easily. The question is who I want to see him ride on the next night with? It's Bing Rhames.
0: Well, I just think it's interesting that we learned Tom Sizemore was his original partner. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> they're just so toxic together but I yeah I personally would only ride with John Goodman I mean he's the only guy that seems sane he doesn't have a god complex that we could see right off the bat <laughs> you know I'm going with him for the most part yeah but yeah also I don't know Ving Graham's is great but I, I kind of want to see the early days of uh, Frank and Tom driving around New York City you know those first two years and see what that was like
1: you want the
2: prequels what you want I want
0: the prequel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> also riding John Goodman you'll know that you get dinner you get your coffee you get your food the only thing I think he cares about more than like doing his job and getting the work done is making sure that they stop for dinner somewhere and stop at the pier to take a nap like he's he's got his life and his night planned out what I really like is that they kind of have at least two if not three different radio dispatchers too for when John Goodman is in the ambulance Martin Scorsese is the ambulance dispatcher so he's great on the thing Far and away, the best interactions between the ambulance and the dispatcher is when Ving Rames is driving and just doing the Ving Rames flirt thing with that poor radio dispatcher just trying to do her job.
0: And Did that you? radio
2: dispatcher is, is Queen Latifah.
0: Yep. Whoa. and
2: Yeah, yeah. I, when she comes on, so this is my, my first ding against the movie, is that I think that uh, I don't love the Scorsese as dispatcher thing. Um, it feels, I don't want to say like when Tarantino puts himself in movies, but when she comes on, She's playing a character, and when Scorsese's on, it feels to me a little bit like he's doing it because he's Scorsese, and I don't know, it feels, like, it feels like trivia in the making, not like he's playing a character. And I, and I wonder if they'd had somebody, and I remember I wrote this down, as he first came on with Goodman in the ambulance, I wonder what this would be like if there was a, a, you know, a real actor who was doing this. And then we, then we find out, because we get Queen Latifah later, and she's great.
0: I had sort of a similar effect where when I heard Scorsese's voice it kind of took me out of it a bit you know, like I was removed a step because uh, it's the director and he's in the movie. Uh, I don't n- normally mind that so much but uh, in this case it did remind me of Guarding Tess when Hugh Wilson put himself yeah. in the movie as the voice of the President of the United States on the telephone <laughs> so you're right, so I did get that like, listen to me cameo like sneak it in there kind of and one other thing I just want to mention that this point that bring up is it kind of made me think okay this is going to lean a little more toward the dark comedic aside from the straight up sort of like dark horror i felt like this movie really easily could have been like a straight horror film at one point you know if you just changed a few things you know mostly music wise but i think this is a bit of levity you know we're going to be dealing with a lot of drama and a lot of crazy situations so possibly scorsese thought you know we just need to get a little laugh out up front here
1: i guess the problem is that like he's too famous or it's too big of a part like it's almost hitchcockian in his cameo but it's not like he's just like walking through or a guy who's waiting for the bus or whatever. He comes back a couple times and has like a bunch of lines, and his voice is so iconic. All I could think about, like you were just saying, Mike, is guarding Tess. And because we didn't necessarily know the director, we didn't know what he sounded like, he was just basically just some guy playing the voice of the president and doing a great job. Like I liked, I thought it was kind of cool, Like it, it did take me out of it. I didn't have as much of a problem with it, I don't think. I think the whole movie is pretty funny. I mean, like, it's darkly funny, but I think it's just another moment that you're sort of able to have a laugh. You sort of also kind of have to be in the know a little bit. Like, not everybody's going to know what he sounds like. And I really wonder what people who don't know that it's him, what they think of that kind of interaction.
2: Yeah, you can never prove a negative. And I, and I, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But, but I fe- really feel like if you had an, an actor in who could really come up with a character for that dispatcher, no, people wouldn't have, have noticed that it you know, was this guy or not that guy. I mean, you know, Joey, you didn't even know it was Queen Latifah in the, in the second dispatcher. Right. It would just feel like a character. And for me, he just didn't feel – it didn't feel like a character to me. It's just too bad because I think it was sort of a, a wasted opportunity.
1: That's fair. I do see why people might have a problem with it, and I'm I'm cool with it. This sort of goes back to like what we were talking about earlier like we met all these colorful characters in the hospital, but we also meet all these colorful characters outside the hospital. We meet Mr. O who's just like this disgusting smelling drunk of a bum. They don't really have like like is there a purpose to him being in the movie other than it's just kind of comic relief? I think he's
0: just—he's um, like a repeat offender, right? Like he's just this guy that calls in a lot, and and they see him as a waste of time, right? Like this is just a bum who needs a ride to the hospital, where like this, his buddies could have put him in a shopping cart and wheeled him there, and like you know while they're taking care of him, someone could be actually dying and, and needing their help at this time. So I think it's just to illustrate that, along with the actual problems out there, that there's these nuisance that they have to deal with as well. You know, people who just take advantage of the system.
2: I think it's. ...telling that when he gets brought in... It's uh, the, our triage nurse, who's usually so gruff and so mean, seems to, to, to really enjoy this guy, seems to, we are going to get a warm bath. For, it doesn't feel sarcastic to me when she's inviting him in. Uh, I read that as an unexpected turn for her, that she sort of welcomes this guy into Our Lady of Perpetual Misery.
0: I think anyone at that hospital would be happy it's not Noel coming in again, who is one of the other main characters, who is sort of this <laughs> homeless maniac well crazy person well he's a (laughs) gun he's a gunshot victim mary the patricia Arquette character knows about him and he will be throughout this entire film
1: i mean i think that noel is sort of a good foil to cage they have like this great conversation about death he's sort of able almost to talk to him more honestly than he can talk to anybody else in the movie i'm not sure like i think maybe because he's just like this kind of crazy guy if Cage told him a secret, if he were to repeat it, people might not believe him. I, I think that it just affords Cage like this sense of honesty and opportunity that he's not able to, to have with anybody else in his life in terms of coworkers or Patricia Arquette or whoever.
2: It is sort of, to get back to the, um, I think it was Mike's point about the uh, Scorsese's Catholicism. Cage is sort of looking for a confessor through this whole movie, looking for someone to forgive him for not saving Rose or these other people that he hasn't been able to save. And Noel is one of the first that it feels like he, he has moments of really being able to confess to, partly because Noel has this great sort of blinking blank look, you know, like he's not really always listening to you. He just wants his cup of water or, or whatever he's after in, in the scene. And maybe that makes it easy for Cage to sort of begin these these, these, these confessions to
0: what I really like about this Noel character is that him and Cage are almost like at the same bus stop. You know what I mean? Like Noel's crazy and Cage is going crazy. And it's almost I'm thinking, is this the one guy he thinks he might be able to like talk to or relate to or might know what's going on with him at some point. And also Noel represents like those guys out there that he sees that are almost dead. They're like the walking dead, right? And like Noel at times looks like a zombie to me. And you know, he'll be covered in blood in one scene or like half naked. And he's got these crazy, dreads and these wild eyes and stuff. Like, he looks like one of the old like Haitian zombies. not like The Walking Dead, but like original style. <laughs> you know, I just wonder if Cage is like, you know, can I save, maybe I can save this guy a different way. Maybe I can save people who aren't just dying, but maybe I can like talk to people or people can help me save myself. Like, that's the kind of vibe I'm getting off of this Noel character for Cage.
1: What do you guys think of Mark Anthony in this movie? I didn't realize it was him. I mean, he's pretty famous, right? Like, I don't I didn't recognize him, but like, he's Sort of like, kind of like a big name, especially this time, right? It was a deal when this movie came
2: out that Mark Anthony was was transitioning into this big prestige, you know, movie role because he, music- he was a musician, right? He's a singer, right? Here. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I knew him as a singer, and he was really big around this time. And a lot of this was like very in vogue for sort of singers or rock stars to start acting i remember bon jovi started getting into the movie business and doing some stuff (laughs) and like even latifah right queen latifah she did a few movies she's still acting today she started as a rapper so that's what i was sort of seeing i was like okay this is that synergy in motion here but i thought he kicked ass to be quite honest. i didn't know him from i never listened to his music i didn't think he pull it off i actually thought he was really good
1: I mean, talk about embodying a character, like we were talking about with Scorsese before. Like, he is just, like, this force. I mean, I honestly thought that, like, it was just a guy whose actual appearance looked like that. To have like this guy like Mark Anthony, you know, this pop singer be this like dirty, homeless, dreadlocked, crazy guy is amazing.
2: Yeah, I think he's I think he's pretty great. He does he does that thing of disappearing into a role here, right? Like he has this disconnect. When someone's talking to him, it's it is as if he's not on the same plane of existence with them. And and whether or not that's easy or hard to do as an actor, I think he's great in the movie. I'm surprised that I have not seen him in more things. And also, could you guys please do the um, Bon Jovi cast next through his
1: movies? Because I think that would be great.
0: (laughs) That'll be like four episodes.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. What I kind of like about Cage's character is that he wants to get fired. Like, he hates his job. He's good at his job, but he hates it because he's haunted. And you have these interactions with his chief, who again, like everybody else we know, is like this clearly defined, like there's a relationship there. Like, he's maybe on screen for a minute or a minute and a half, but we know exactly the kind of back and forth that he's always had with Cage. He's like, hey, no, don't worry about it. Like, I'll fire you tomorrow, but like, we're really busy tonight. I need you to go take care of business. It's like this funny little awkward situation. It's perfectly written and acted out by this guy. He's just so good in the part.
2: Yeah, for Cage, you know the job is killing him. That's how it feels like to him. He tells us he needs, he he, he wants to be fired. He said, "You you promised you'd fire me if I came in late one more time." And I, and I love that this actor playing the the captain or the chief or whoever it is. It, this is such a, a little aria that he has in this scene, right? And it's it's kind of an echo, as there are a lot in this movie of one of the previous um, Paul Schrader uh, Scorsese movies, Taxi Driver, where um, Travis Bickle goes in and talks to his dispatcher. In some ways, this is the sort of more comic echo of that and when the uh, chief or the captain when he barks at him and and then they and then they make comments about that about (laughs) i could i could bark too i mean it's just it's uh, this 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 movie is surprising me in ways i did not remember all these these smaller pitch perfect performances uh, supporting performances from the first time i saw it and i'm and i'm enjoying them so much more than i remember when i first saw it
0: Yeah, this scene is excellent. I love when Cage is like, you know, I can bark too, you know. I know how to bark, (laughs) right? And and it just goes to show, like, even his boss is nuts, right? Like, he starts barking at him. Like, I was just like, what the hell? Like, I mean, the actor is great. He pulled it off and everything. It's just another dimension to the guy, right? You know, instead of just being a guy sitting behind a desk, like, he starts barking. It's a good little touch. But uh, I'm getting so many shades of Taxi Driver here, too. Not just because it's, like, Schrader on the script and Scorsese behind the camera, maybe, But a lot of the nighttime shots is just a lot like when Travis was driving around town. You know, it just seems to invoke a lot of the same feeling uh, visually to me of that type of New York. The 70s and the 90s really weren't that different as far as, you know, the way New York was up until Giuliani came along. And that is something I had forgotten. You know, uh, even up until 91, it was kind of dangerous to go around wherever you wanted
2: yeah, there are shots early on in this movie of when they're driving around New York in the ambulance and you see and, – and the steam is rising up from the from the ground and you're looking at the people walking past that are almost the same shots from Taxi Driver, almost shot for shot some of the same staring out the window at the nightlife in the city and it is amazing if you take this this movie and that movie as accurate representations of the time in New York how little had changed between you know in the, in the intervening 20 years
0: and then how drastically everything would change within 10, you know, it's just, like, shocking. Joey and I mentioned a lot, like, you know, we got to see the old Yankee Stadium and it could happen to you. And, like, films yeah. are just, yeah. like, these wonderful time capsules. So, like, if anyone was wondering, you know, how crazy the city was, this is this is a good representation.
2: In order for Scorsese to, to depict an, another time, you know, his next movie in New York, he has to go way back in time because
0: <laughs> yeah. he, couldn't,
2: he couldn't make these kind of movies about today's New York because that's not the New York that we have right now.
0: He couldn't go forward to match the craziness. He had to go like a hundred years in the past. <laughs> right.
1: Right. And so the next sort of big thing that happens and sort of one of my favorite parts he's, he's out on the night, he's on the second night he's out with Ving Rhames and Ving Rhames is telling him about how you know he looks so much worse than the last time he looked at him or the last time they rode together and Cage is like yeah I started seeing the ghosts again ving sort of delivers the cage advice here like we haven't been doing cage advice a lot on the podcast lately but it seems like in recent movies he's been getting the advice instead of giving the advice ving rames basically says you can't change what's out there you have to start in here like the world is always going to be crazy you need to sort of change the way that you look at it if you're ever going to sort of thrive and sort of get back to living a normal life i've
3: seen the ghosts you mean people we love yeah
4: Hey, gotta go, gotta go. God bless them. You get used to that, son. You ever notice people who see shit are always crazy? Mm Mm-hmm. Scientific fact.
3: I think the worst is over.
4: Oh, no, son. It can always get worse. See, you can't change what's out there. Only where you're coming from. So you gotta let the good Lord, thank you, Jesus, take
0: over in here. I totally love this character of Marcus that Ving Rames is coming with. He has found a way to rationalize everything he sees through the good Lord, you know, and, <laughs> and that's great. It works for him. But like Cage would say about saving a life, you know, you feel like God, like God, works through you you know there's no other way to mention it like how else can you describe bringing someone back from dying you'd feel like god you'd walk around the street for days like on a high and here is ving rames who has who is like overdosing on that high right and like (laughs) the god complex is just like off the charts you know this is like someone who should go start a cult one day (laughs) if you ask me but i love it because it's working for him right it's keeping him for all intent and purpose sane well it's keeping him from from breaking at least
2: yeah, with these three partners in the ambulance, you end up with Cage seeing three different systems for dealing with this job. Where, you know, for John Goodman, it's dinner, and for Ving Rames, it's, you know, Jesus. And then for Tom Sizemore, it's going to be for be, beating the crap out of people and, and sort of giving in to the worst impulses of the streets that they're viewing. These three different ways to sort of deal with this crazy job uh, that they do. But this, this Ving Rames character, if you only know Ving Rames from Pulp Fiction and other sort of – or even the, even the um, Mission Impossible movies, like you have to see this Ving Rheims performance because he brings it in this
1: role. And we sort of get the showcase of, like, who he is as a character and how he's bringing in this movie in the next scene that Queen Latifah radios in and says, we got something for you. And then they go and he sort of has like a prayer circle while Cage is bringing this guy back to life through science and again sort of you know man of science man of faith like we've been talking about a couple times in cage club cage is sort of bringing the guy back to life doing his normal paramedic stuff thing rings is having like people hold hands around the body and doing a prayer circle for this guy i be banging rebuke the, the spirit of drugs
4: in the name of jesus what's his name i be banging what you mean i be banging i be banging what the hell kind of name is i be banging i don't know his real name it's
5: frederick smith
4: okay freddie
5: it's frederick
4: Okay, I'll be banging. We're going to bring you back from the dead. Now, I want everybody here to grab the hand of the person next to you. Come on now, we ain't got much time. And look up towards the heavens. Dear Lord, here I am again. Asking one more chance for a sinner. Please, Lord, bring back I be banging, Lord You have the power, Jesus You have the might You have the super light To spare this worthless man Rise up. Frederick. I be banging
5: oh And God. start
4: your life anew, Lord Oh, thank you, Lord What happened? You fucking died, you stupid bastard
5: no. I warned you Damn, you
1: guys are good Not us The first step is love The second is mercy. It's like this perfect blend of like crazy street culture with religion like we've been talking about with Scorsese. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie just because it's so I don't know that I've ever seen many things like this. This is so much fun. This is—he's a televangelist.
2: He's a—he's a revivalist. I mean, this—and and and hes he given these looks to Cage as Cage is prepping whatever this the drug is that they're going to use to to bring this kid back. And so he's totally pull—it's a charlatan act, right? Like he's pulling pulling one over on these kids who are you know fighting over why he's did, did he break up with this girl? Is that why he killed himself? Or what, what's whatever's going on with with these kids? He's looking at Cage and knows right at the moment that that, that that Cage is going to revive him, and it's this the look behind the curtain of his quote unquote quote unquote religion, right? Like it's manufactured in this way. It's just a brilliant and funny, funny scene.
0: It's just such a wonderful comment for Scorsese to make as well. He's taking a shot as a, at his own religion in a way here too, you know, where him as a filmmaker is saying, okay, there are sides of this religion that are trying to rob you blind and they're not real and they're just trying to take advantage of you. And I just think it's wonderful that he was able to put that in this film and, and find a way to show that that's sort of just universal, you know? I mean, being <laughs> Rames being the African-American and sort of leading this circle of white gothic kids to (laughs) rockers to like revive their kid it's comedic it's smart it's yeah it's just such a unique scene
1: piggybacking on that in terms of scorsese sort of taking a shot at his own religion we go back to the hospital after this saving ving rames talks about how like he thinks there's a special place reserved in hell for people who charge a dollar fifty for a slice of pizza i think that's really funny just in terms of the religion thing but also like really true I mean, that's the one thing that I don't like about living in Austin is that coming from New Jersey, New York, the best pizza all over the place for dirt cheap. Like, you come down here and, like, there's mediocre at best pizza for, like, 4 or $5 a slice, and it just makes me cry every time. So I was glad to see in this movie Ving Raim sort of take a shot at people charging a little bit too much for pizza.
2: It's true. The worst pizza in New York is better than the best pizza most places. It's that's that's a that's a stereotype that is totally true.
0: They start naming pizza places like <laughs> like Schrader and Scorsese have a personal grudge and like and they're they're trying to like get the word out about the right place to go get pizza. I love it.
1: I think my favorite one was like the, you remember that pizza place put the little like Virgin Mary yes. in their pizza like <laughs> it's probably like a real place too that they just actually pulled from the history books from their personal experience and just threw into this movie. And it just, I like, I love it. Yeah, that has to be real. That's, that's, that has
2: to be real. (laughs) Can we talk about Patricia Arquette in this scene? We haven't really talked about her much, and this is her second or third scene. Scorsese does some interesting things with the camera in here, but she, she is playing, and I don't blame her, but she's playing kind of flat for me in this scene. Do you guys have another take on it?
1: This is where they have their little, like, heart to heart, right? Like, this is where they sort of first open up to one another. How long have you been doing this? Five years. (sighs)
5: Wow, you must have seen some things, huh?
3: Well, no, I mean, you, you sort of learn to block it out, you know. It's like um, like cops fencing off a crime scene. But then, something good will happen. It's, everything just glows.
5: I just get a lot of overdoses. Bet you picked me up a couple times.
3: I think I'd remember that.
5: Maybe not. I was a different person then. Does everyone you meet just you know, spill their guts on you like this?
3: Uh, mostly. <laughs> Must be my face. My mother always said, I look like a priest.
5: You do? Yeah. Yeah, my mom thought I was going to be a nun. Because uh, I ran away to a convent when I was 13. But I didn't want to be a nun. I just, I wanted to run away. Uh-oh. Sister Mary, Mary the Junkie, it didn't really
0: matter to me. I'm not just getting very much from her character. I, I don't know at this point it's so much Patricia Urquhart portraying her. I just don't know that there's a lot here for me to to dig into. But I will say I think it's interesting to see this couple acting against each other in a way. Like I think she would be worse if it wasn't Nick Cage that she was acting with. He's kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say like holding her hand through this or anything because that's probably not the case at all. But that's just the sense that I get that he's the stronger one sort of leading this scene.
1: She doesn't really have a character arc. Like, she is only in this movie to serve him. Her father is sick. She's trying to learn how to cope with it. But it doesn't really matter if she does or not because the way that the movie portrays her, like, we don't really care if she's okay with it. She's just there to sort of, at the end give cage the forgiveness channel the rose the girl that he wasn't able to save to accept her father's ultimate death and give him forgiveness that like it wasn't his fault so i think that's part of the reason why she's not the greatest in this scene or in the whole movie because she just doesn't have anything to work with I totally agree. I think it's the writing. I, I don't. I don't think that
2: she's a character, really. I think that she's kind of a, a a cipher. She's kind of a mouth mouthpiece. We're supposed to believe that she is ultimately going to be, you know, his source of redemption in a way. I'm I'm having a real hard time figuring out why I'm not connecting to her the way that he is, and and I just I have to believe that the way that the 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 part is written that it's a little thin, especially when you have all of the. If you think about all of these other characters, even the the one off. You know the triage nurse. Like you, I know so much more about her. her about her emotional state. I can sort of see what she was like, you know, twenty years ago or five minutes ago. And I, and I don't get. I'm not getting any of that from her. But I don't think it's Patricia Arquette because there are a couple scenes where she does really show up. I think it's I think it's the writing here.
1: I'm also not sure how invested in their relationship we're supposed to be. I don't know hmm. if it's supposed to be romantic. I don't know if he's just there trying to get something from her and that's just the forgiveness or the relief or whatever they never kiss at the end of the movie she's just sort of holding him kind of like motherly in the next scene we have ving Reims talking to cage about the rules of love like don't get involved with the patient don't get involved with the patient's daughter but like are they supposed to be a couple like it doesn't seem like either of them really want it
0: I don't get the sense that they're supposed to be a couple or that they might end up being a couple. I actually think her character would be stronger if she were in less of the movie because it would sort of have more importance in a way, right? Like we just get a glimpse of the daughter at the beginning and a glimpse of her at the end and we could maybe chart her growth or change in our own heads just from those two sequences. But sticking with her, I don't know. Like part of me goes back to the religious thing again. It's hard not to, but her name is Mary right and you know i just keep thinking of mother of jesus and all the marys in the bible and things like that so she could perhaps just be this sort of symbol that he will find out things about mary soon that she isn't the most holy of of people but like i think at this point cage is just trying to hold her up on some kind of pedestal for some reason like holding out hope that people are good and she's just one of the good people who got stuck under the mud somehow it doesn't deserve to be here I'm not sure exactly working things out through cage club though
2: whether or not she, you know, whether she's... Mary, Mother of Jesus, or Mary Magdalene—you know—given her past, it she feels much more like a religious icon, right? Like she feels like a like one of those one of those cards, one of those religious icon cards, uh, so often to me than she does as a character. But it is in this scene he has these Scorsese has these kind of crazy fades, fades ninety degrees around her face a couple times as as they're sitting there eating this pizza. I have a I have a submission for Cage advice in this movie, which comes up a couple of times here, but he says it for the first time here to her, where he says. Um, you have to keep the body going until the brain and the heart recover enough to go on their own, which is clearly what he needs to do, right? He's talking about her father, but it's advice to himself, and that's something that comes back at the end of this movie. So it's not that there aren't good things in these scenes or that we don't, we don't need to get this information. I'm not sure that
1: this is the right place for it or character for it or something. I don't know if there's like a single problem or if it's a combination of factors. I didn't necessarily have too much of a problem while watching the movie, but it's one of those kind of things where we think back how she was portrayed and the interactions, and it's not as good as it could have been. And I guess... I mean, I brought this up again uh, in City of Angels when we were talking about Meg Ryan. Now that we saw Cage and Elizabeth Shue in Leaving Las Vegas, I kind of want them together in every movie. Oh, that's fascinating.
0: So we sort of ran into the same problem in 8mm with Catherine Keener as the wife, right? Like, she was drastically Hmm. underwritten and we had such a strong actor to do a lot with nothing. And it's just, I don't know, it could just be the the era of filmmaking, right? Like, the 90s. I mean, these are just such adrenaline-driven, male-centric sort of stories that we're watching and so that could also just be a factor.
1: I think what's also kind of interesting is that this is one of the very few movies so far that Cage doesn't really get the girl, yet in real life, like, he has the girl. Like, this is the one example where he just doesn't necessarily, there's just not a love story. It's weird that, like, the movie that his wife at the time was in is one where they're not together.
2: Yeah, there's no compromising going on in this movie, or the only compromising going <laughs> on is happening, you know, in the trailer after the after cut. <laughs> I disagree a little, bit. I think there is a love story. I just don't think it's a sexual love story. I think that they have a their their story is one of love. It's one of compassion. It's one of forgiveness. It's one of redemption. It's just not physical. The one kiss they have, he kisses her on the cheek in this beautifully lit shot in the parking lot of the hospital, and then and then we'll get to the end when we get there. But it's they're they're going for and achieve some of a love story. It's just not the traditional romantic love story.
0: Going back to just how he might be trying to save someone in another way, right? Like maybe he can save this girl even if he can't save the father somehow, or maybe talking to her will. Fire find a way for him to save himself. I, I'm sort of going in that direction now.
1: I guess that's like the whole point of the movie, right? Like he's saving these other people but he's unable to save himself. And so mm. He's just looking for the person in his life, whether it's a patient, whether it's a co-worker, whether it's a patient's daughter, whoever, that can help sort of give him absolution and save him and bring him back to the life that he once had. And maybe save him from his haircut.
2: His haircut is so beautifully bad in this movie, like <laughs> clearly deliberately, but it's just so beautifully bad in this movie. And you know, chalk it up to another cage... Cage hair, uh, you know, bravery here. This is, uh, this is brave to, to walk around however many months they film this movie with this haircut.
1: He's supposed to look disheveled, right? Like, what's kind of interesting, I think, is that we rarely see him off the job. Like, we don't know what his home life is like. We don't know if he has friends. We don't know what he does when he's not on the clock. All we really see of him is him at work. And I guess that kind of gives the sense that like he's always at work, which we know can't be the case. Between the makeup, between the hair, between the way he carries himself, it all just portrays this guy who's sort of kind of given up, right?
0: I started wondering if this was a case where they did a lack of makeup maybe you know what i mean like normally you spend hours in the makeup trailer to look good maybe he showed up on set and they just shot him like this and it's like <laughs> you know in movie standards this is just everyday cage he definitely gets that look across he's a skeleton he's like a zombie in this movie basically you know he looks like a guy who hasn't showered in days when we see his house he's got tinfoil on the windows to cover all the light right because he has to sleep all yeah. day I and mean, you talk about vampires kiss like <laughs> this, this guy is a vampire basically and and that night you know he's trying to sort of feed off of other people's hope or guilt or misery and that just like keeps him going like another day
1: what sort of gives this movie like a little bit of a burst of life doesn't really necessarily do much for him but seems to do a lot for ving Rhame's character is when they get a call that there's some... Basically, the call is something like there's a junkie at this old you know apartment building, needs help, go help him out. It's, again, sort of like a little religious, like, talk about Mary, right? Like, it's these two guys, it's this couple. keeps like, oh, she's pregnant. And, and the guy's like, no, like, we're virgins. Like, it can't be like... It's, it must be like... An, like, if she's pregnant, like it must be like an immaculate conception. They save this woman, they deliver the two babies... Cage rushes one to the hospital, him successfully kind of doing his job doesn't do much for Cage, but like gives Ving Rhames a real charge.
0: The way Cage sees it is I didn't save mine, you saved yours, but that was yours and this is mine and I lost my baby, but the way Marcus sees it, Ving Rhames, he's like nah man, he's like, I didn't save this baby we saved this baby together, you know again, he might be a zealot, but like he's got the right idea, he's he's always looking on the bright side, and, and for what it's worth, he's trying to save Cage too too, you know but cage ain't hearing it. he's just not listening
3: don't give me that look what look you know what look it's all over your face that
4: i just saved a little baby boy look we just saved a little bouncing baby boy
3: think of it that i way. don't want to hear about it okay that's three jobs for the night it's over three jobs time for a drink 6 a.m the cocktail hour all right so pass the bottle i the, know
4: you're holding the bar is now open I hate you. You know, when I had that little baby in my hands, I felt like I was 21 again. Call like that makes me want to go back to working three nights a week, not two. You know, start running again, cut down on my drinking.
3: I'll drink of that.
4: Here's to the greatest job in the world.
2: And as we've said, there are moments in this movie where Scorsese is, is at his best, as I'm really on top of his game. And there's one of these moments as, as Cage rushes into the ER with one of the, the infants, you know, um, doing infant CPRs. He's coming in. There's this uh, all this the quick action shots as they're, as they're getting all the medical equipment ready. And there's this whip pan up to the baby monitor where they have all stopped to look and see if they're going to get a heartbeat. And the camera's been moving, moving, moving. It whips up to the monitor and then slowly comes back. No, no, there's no heartbeat and the camera slowly pulls back and just goes to Cage and pushes slowly in on him and it, you, you whether you can articulate yourself or not you know that, that this is not going to end well that, that this baby is not going to come back um, moments like that where Scorsese is using, using the camera to tell the story independent of any dialogue or anything is it just is really really great filmmaking
0: it's interesting you bring up that now I, w- I would like to talk just a moment about the camera work here it enhances the script the story it just enhances everything like Scorsese's abilities are just making everything better as opposed to sort of like what we were watching De Palma do in Snake Eyes I mean he's got that amazing 13 minute opening tracking shot you can't deny that however I felt that the rest of his sort of trickery got in the way of telling that particular story instead of helping it along the way and i'm just getting the opposite here where like all of scorsese's tricks are just doing the right thing for me
1: well it's kind of about using the tools that you have but not overdoing it i think we cover that a lot in snake eyes that like there's a lot of cool things but there's just too much of it here some of the things kind of stand out like we talked about when they're in the ambulance and just like the weird blur photography or, like Tobin was saying, when they have, like, the left shot of Patricia Arquette, then it's the straight on, then the right. They're few and far between, and they sort of, they're there for a reason, I think is the, right. the important thing, right? Like, they're, whatever the scene wants to accomplish, they're, like, little touches or flourishes that help. As opposed to Brian De Palma saying, "Like, hey, look at all this cool stuff I can do with cameras and editing."
2: There's very, very little in this movie that feels like he's showing off just for showing off's sake. So much of the of the camera and the editing—I don't even want to say the word tricks—the techniques that he's using are so often tied to story or psychology or emotion. Again, this is this is—I I, to show my hand—I didn't love this movie when I first saw it. I like it so much better this time, maybe because I've I've been to film school and I've made movies and I, I have some <laughs> I've seen a lot more, you know, since I was 21 or 20 or whatever. But there's a real sense here that he's he's in command of his vocabulary, you know, he's in command of this camera and it may feel manic but it does not feel out of control.
1: So getting back to things a little bit in terms of the story, Ving Rhames, like we were saying, does have the right idea. He's like, no, I can save the baby, we save the baby. But like, it gets him too amped up and they flip the ambulance? There's such little fallout from it in the movie that it almost makes me question whether or not it actually happened. Cage sort of has scrapes and bruises for the rest of the movie, but they don't really get in trouble. I mean, they were drinking while they were driving the ambulance. Most of this movie, for the most part, it's grounded. But like, this is such like an over-the-top event that makes me wonder, like, did this actually happen?
2: That's so true. There's a lot in this movie that it begins to feel more and more like a fever dream, and I begin to wonder more and more what we're actually seeing, and if it's something that's really happened to him. And that's a great point I had not thought about about that whether or not the fact that there was no, there's no repercussions really from crashing this ambulance. He just sort of walks away from it, right? I mean, it's it's a great moment in the movie, and it's, again, it's shot beautifully as that, that camera turns as he gets out of the ambulance. It's sort of sideways, but it looks upright to us, and we realize it's on its side. But but that's true. You, you, you really do wonder if stuff like this is actually happening to him.
0: It almost made me feel like it was a scene from After Hours or something, like <laughs> where no one was witness <laughs> to this. Like, did it actually occur? Where are? You? Is it just that time at the night in the city where crazy things are just happening all over the place and it's also very self-contained? But it also is sort of making a comment about these guys who are supposed to be out there helping people again it's a job for them like they're drinking on the job you know the irony of medics getting into a car accident right like i just think it's (laughs) It caps the scene really well. I don't know. It puts a good cap on the end of the day. It all comes your way right, from Ving Rhames being on this high and not being able to know when to say when. And it's just meant to show that there's repercussions when you try and do too much, right? It's quit in time, but Ving Rhames won't be having it one more job. And it's like, no, it was supposed to be quit in time. And like the universe is telling you that by getting you into an accident
1: speaking of quitting time like this is finally like the last straw the cage is like all right like i quit i'm not gonna wait to get fired i can't be in ambulances flipping like i'm not really happy with my life but like i still want to keep living
2: and, and wouldn't it be for you too i mean that would
1: <laughs>
2: as, as if there weren't other things that had happened that would have had me reevaluating my life choices <laughs> flipping an ambulance because the other emd is is drunk yeah i'm done i'm done
1: Now that he is sort of free of his obligations, this is kind of the longest stretch of the movie where we see him not on the job, and he sees Patricia Arquette coming out of the hospital, and she's headed somewhere, and he offers to give her a ride, and they go to this apartment building, and he follows her up against her wishes. If the hospital is heaven, sort of like we were talking about in 8mm when we go into Dino Velvet's office, going into this one apartment is sort of like cage entering hell, like everything is tinted red, we kind of meet the devil himself. There is like this demonic hellish imagery here, right? It's interesting, too, to, to connect to Scorsese's Catholicism,
2: which we may be overdoing it, although it's, you know, he said it and, and Schrader, you know, in his, for his own way, his own Calvinist upbringing, he's he's brought up the same kind of thing, that this devil is... Um, seductive right this is not the devil with the with the horns and the pitchfork throwing fire at you this is the devil who invites you in makes you feel comfortable and yeah you feel some menace but he's but he's very smooth right like he's and he's he's offering you exactly what you want he's offering him sleep he's offering, yeah. offering him rest like it's that yeah. this is the most insidious kind of devil right
0: and he refers to his den as the oasis another sort of theme of water you know we've had Noel sort of craving water this entire film and now Kate is going to sit down at the Oasis and relax here for a little while. This is very interesting, and it's something we've sort of seen a lot with. We- with some Cage Club films where he's meeting his opposite. Cage is this wound-up, tense, do-gooder, angel-type figure, and he's meeting this, like, completely laid-back, you know, as chill as possible. You know, even later, when he gets injured, he's still pretty chill, right? Like, nothing rattles this guy. And it's really cool how we get, like, this scene where he's acting against, like, his opposite self.
1: Like you were saying, Tobin, like, he's offering exactly what Cage wants the most, it's sleep, but it's kind of, like, a false sleep. Right. This isn't the way that he's meant to get the sleep. Ultimately he will sort of get that relief when he comes to grips that it wasn't his fault that Rose died and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Talk about like in a movie full of manic inner thoughts for Cage, refined directorial flourishes from Scorsese, there's, like, the craziest dream sequence in, like, one of the craziest <laughs> dream sequences I've ever seen in a movie. It's so out of place, almost, that it feels right at home.
0: I'm sort of gonna go back to where I say, like, a lot of this has horror influences, and I'm seeing it here a lot, too. All throughout the film, the lighting has been almost lit like a 80s Italian horror movie from Dario Argento. It's, like, yes. very yes. Suspiria-type. There's, you know, ghosts on the streets, and the haunting atmosphere to the whole thing. And this dream sequence, you know, almost getting like, we'll see a little bit of this almost in Shutter Island later from Scorsese, where he whips out his gothic horror again. To get a Scorsese dream sequence, like, I was not expecting this. And I'm loving it where he's pulling up the ghosts through the city street from the underground and they're all coming up and everything. And then he goes into like a flashback and and we see the mystery behind Rose's death, which I was not ready for. This is a really good place to put it, right? Like he's having a, It's supposed to be a dream, but he's having a nightmare.
2: Scorsese is known for his use of music. And, you know, I, as I said, I listened to the, the soundtrack to this and spent most of my time on the what's the frequency, Kenneth, the R.E.M. song. But but this this Japanese Sandman music over over at least the beginning of this. And I mean, it's the fever dream of the movie sort of comes to the to the boiling point here. Right. To mix my metaphors, the music in this, I think, just sort of perfectly sort of goes against what you're seeing as well as reinforcing it in a way. It's it's really fun to see that way.
1: What I like about this dream sequence is that, like, aside from the music, because the music is perfect, but I think it's telling that even in his dreams, like, Cage can't get rest, he can't get relaxation, he's not able to save these people in his dreams, even when he sort of seemingly gets what he wants, he doesn't get the relief or the release that he needs. It's like a false kind of hope.
0: Early on in the film, he says, all I need are a couple slow days, a couple days off. I don't think he really knows what he needs, to be honest. like He he thinks he just needs a good night's sleep, but what he really needs is to sort of forgive himself.
2: Those two things get bound up here. We see the, the, the root of those of those two things in this sequence.
1: I don't know if as the movie's going on, we just see Cage's inner self devolve into more and more madness, and like this is kind of a breaking point, but we go back to the hospital, and he goes to see Patricia Arquette's dad, the guy is laying there, like, semi-responsive. He's been resuscitated, like, what, like they say 17 times? And he's sort of conscious, but we hear Cage, like, I think this is the first time in the movie that we hear him hearing voices, and he's sort of able to communicate with her dad. This dream almost kind of broke him, like he woke up screaming from the dream, and now, like, the, the visions and the hauntings in his life are sort of worse than they have been all movie. It's such a shock when you first see the
2: father because you see shots of the father sometimes looking at him, sometimes not. But he's on this respirator, on this ventilator, like he's not conscious, so that we can see, right? Or that he's not—he's being—he's been sedated in this way. So if you were standing in the room with them, you would not see him doing anything. But the shots of him uh, with then it this accusing voiceover, or I guess increasingly accusing voiceover—is a kind of a kind of a shocking moment. I'm not connected it to being post the dream sequence but you're totally right that that did change things that feels, feels like a turning point for his psyche doesn't it
0: it's totally like the subconscious veil has been lifted right and now he's like trying to work things out to the surface so these delusions are just further trying to tell him what he already knows in a way to keep this guy on life support like this is just inhumane at this point i think anyone could agree with that
1: and i think we also see like how it's paying off in his day-to-day life it might be something that he's been doing for days or all movie long just off-camera, but he's riding with Tom Sizemore. This is the third night and the final night in the movie. He's, like, tying off in the back of the ambulance like <laughs> he's a junkie. He's going to give himself a little bit of a kick like with the vitamin B, glucose, <laughs> and adrenaline. It's the most extreme example of something he's gone through to try to relieve himself of a little bit of this madness. It just plays hand-in-hand hand with his downward mental state.
2: The image of, of him crawling back up into the front of the ambulance and carrying the IV that is in his arm with the oxygen mask over his mouth. I mean, it's just this is if, if you are a fan of manic crazy Cage, like you begin to get that in mm-hmm. in here. You start to see those that side of him, and it's the sort of thing that's hard to imagine another actor doing. Being able to be totally in the moment and really feeling the pain and draw, uh, you know, of this character. As well as make it funny, this is not an easy thing to do. And I, you know, you could see other actors tilting it too far one way or the other, either being sort of slapsticky or being overly melodramatic about it. And Cage has this has this way of of pulling that off, I think. And nowhere is it better than in this this moment in the scene.
0: It's such like a surreal vision, right, of this guy who looks like he's hooked up to like, you know, like I said, like he's on life support, and like now he really looks like it too with the mask and the IV and everything. And you're so right. I feel like from now now on when he teams up with tom his old partner and we see old habits start to come back into his life we need a guy like cage who could go from zero in the last scene to 60 in this scene right we, he's got one scene to show you how crazy it's gonna get a guy like cage is the right guy for that you know he he can go there in such a short amount of time
2: it's one of the things i love about what you guys are doing with his podcast which is which is taking cage you know unironically through these performances even even ones you know where where the movie's a little cur- a little over the top or he's a little over the top but you know, people can i think forget how specific an actor he can be and and that really shows up here this is also like, the scene that has the shot that i re- remember most from the first time i saw it I, I, if i remember nothing else from this movie it's this pam left as the as the taxi goes by except we're looking at it halfway upside down right so it looks like it's yeah. you know driving across the screen even though it's on the street it's a it's a wild wild shot that i, I can't describe very well uh, over the over a podcast but but you should really take a look at it. it just i did not know enough about film to understand anything about it when i saw it except that it just that image just completely stuck in my mind
1: going back to what we were talking about in terms of like the the directorial flourishes like as cage is getting crazier i guess scorsese's getting a little crazier too we see size more in like the manic little there's a lot of things in the scene that shot these shots whatever everything's coming together and just amping you up basically we're going to reach a breaking point sooner rather than later we don't know where it's going to be or how it's going to happen but like things aren't going to go well here
0: as intense as everything's already been on Thursday and Friday, Saturday is going to be like the third act of Goodfellas, you know, when, when Henry <laughs> thinks he's being followed. It's going to take that and go even further, you know, like every kind of problem, I guess, with this guy is going to come up. Now. Like, it's just that ambulance isn't really going to come to represent very much good <laughs> for the rest of the film. There's, it comes to like this boiling point. It's scary, it's intense, and it's bizarre, and I'm loving it. So we sort of get with his three different partners. They all have very distinct sort of personalities, and and Tom Sizemore is definitely like this aggressive. I almost see him as like this Vietnam vet having flashbacks while he's driving around the city, you know, thinking he's at war or something. And his ambulance will sort of come to represent like the aggression that needs to sort of be discharged to deal with jobs like this. They have a call where a homeless person has tried to kill himself. Cage gets there, and he is just so disgusted with the failed suicide attempt that he ends up going off at this poor guy and we never see him yell at any of his patients before but now like that he's riding with his old partner it's like that anger has like infected him
3: this is the worst suicide attempt i've ever seen you feel that pulse here that's where you cut and it's not across it's down like so here take it i can't what i can't i see With all the poor people of this city who wanted only to live and were viciously murdered. You have the nerve to sit here wanting to die and not go through with it? You make me sick! Take it! Take it! (laughs) We cured him! There's nothing we can't do if we just work together. I told you to stop
2: for coffee, and he pulls out a knife right he pulls out this knife and is like wielding at the guy, saying, Do it, this is how you do it, you cut long ways along the arm and you and he's has says something in his speech about how you know all the people in the city who are innocent people who wanted to live who've been murdered, and you can see that we've already seen in fact the ghosts of so many of the people that Cage has been unable to save uh, in the course of his of his years in in the ambulance, and and he's saying you you have the audacity to try and kill yourself and then you fail at it. As crazy as Cage is in this moment, like I can understand where this comes from for him, right? Like if one of the people who you know had been had been innocently killed had survived, and this guy who wanted to die had died, like in for, Cage's mind that adds up like that would make more sense than what's going on here and you you can sense there's something this is what I mean There's something real and human about the, the anger and the rage underneath the sort of craziness that's going on with Cage in this moment
1: he kind of plays like good cop bad cop almost all movie long with all of his partners this is the ambulance of aggression this is like this true genuine earned outrage But Tom Sizemore, that we've come to know him as this bastion of anger and just aggression, he kind of diffuses a situation that, like, like Mike was talking about earlier, like I wish that there was like this prequel, because it seems like you know as one is rising up, like as Cage is getting angrier and angrier, Tom Sizemore's like, okay, I got to calm things down. We got to slow things down because we can't both be angry because then nothing will get accomplished.
0: Yeah, it almost reminded me of how Ving Rhames puts on his evangelical act, and he's like, oh, it's mostly an act. And it seems like Tom Sizemore is mostly putting on an act when he's running into his fellow guys on the street. You know, he's coming across like this psycho, but Nick Cage. Cage is a real psycho, you know. Frank really is losing it, and and when Tom sees that, he's like, "Oh, this is like the real deal. Like I was just sort of playing, but like this is this guy's for real."
2: He does seem to love it, though. Sizemore seems to really be be enjoying yes. Cage going this crazy and and Tom Sizemore is another actor that, you know, when you think of Tom Sizemore, when I think of Tom Sizemore, I do not think of great Tom Sizemore performances. <laughs> you know, his his real his real life, or presumed real life, has sort of overshadowed so much of his work, but he is he is so great in this movie. He's so great and scary and funny for, for being such a angry, violent guy, he's smiling a lot in this movie.
0: Yeah, he's almost like got that joke edge to him i thought like funny enough the yeah. jokers come up several times through cage club here and there but i could see size sizemore has like he's psychotic you know he might be a good guy but that doesn't mean he can't be psychotic
1: this all kind of builds like there's like this it continues the trend of the film we're out of the dream sequence we are into cage shooting up we are into cage lashing out and it kind of all comes to a head when they re-enter hell sort of unknowingly so that they get another call on their receiver and they get sent back to the place where Cage went with Patricia Arquette so that they could both get a little bit of sleep and a little bit of relief. It's sort of like an inverted sort of version of hell where all the demons are dead.
2: We didn't point out before the 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 den, the drug den apartment here has the second of the wire connections. We had Omar have a gunshot wound earlier and then um, Sonia San, who played um, Kima in, in The Wire is the woman who lets them into the apartment. She's sort of the gatekeeper of, of the drug and she, the first thing we see is her sprawled into the hallway with a gunshot wound to the head, right? Isn't it? And then you come down the hallway in another taxi driver ripoff. No, I shouldn't say ripoff, but it was this movie. Um, another taxi driver lift, you're moving overhead looking down the hallway and you see these fish flopping on the carpet. And you just know that, like, it's both funny and something really bad has happened. And it connects us back to what Mike was saying earlier about the sort of the water metaphor of, the, of this oasis, right? It's a great image, those fish, and it's a chilling image, those fish on the floor.
0: One Image I really love is what I call the uh, ghost blood water. It's like, so she was shot in the head and the water went all over the place, and then the water and the blood mixed and ran down the hallway. And it just gives like this very eerie sense of like this very weird, viscous like imagery I just never, not used to you know, and they're stepping through this like cloudy bloody water, it's just very creepy, and then you get like the very distant sounds of red, red wine playing on somebody's radio in the apartment complex, and again like, I I feel like Scorsese could have gone full horror, but I'm loving the way he's undercutting these tense moments with, you know, music or clever line here or there, or, or he's just finding a way to sort of twist all this madness right so that it's viewable and you know you can sort of laugh at it and detach yourself from it a bit more
1: there's a lot of music that i think works either well in the scene or works ironically or like the music is very prominent like it's not hiding under things like it's there and like you're supposed to pay attention to it right how do you feel like it works in terms of the scene in terms of the movie in terms of red red wine all of it i think I, i discovered i still have the cd (laughs) <laughs> that i That I
2: bought in ninety nine of the soundtrack, and so I had listened to some of it to tr- to sort of figure that out. I think it's just, the music is so well used in the film, I don't know how much of it I would listen to as music. You know, the, the ones that are the most iconic in the movie, I wouldn't very often put on the, the Japanese Sandman song just in the car, you know? I, I, but I will now, more often having seen this movie again. I don't know that I would choose to listen to the songs all that often on their own, but my gosh, they're, they're just used so well so often in, the, in this movie.
0: And, and that's another big Scorsese trademark, too. You know, we talked a lot about his camera work, in this and he's bringing all of his technique there but I also feel like he's really focused in on what songs he wants to use like everything's here for a reason Joey and I have talked about how songs get sort of put in film you know to sell a soundtrack and that happened a lot in the 90s you know even though like the REM might take me out of it it doesn't feel like it's there for no reason you know I feel like he's trying to establish a shift in the tone at that moment and this is how he expertly does those types of things you know he knows the language of music and and he's using it really well here.
2: It's a great point and it's he one of the, his innovations as a, a American filmmaker was to begin to use music that wasn't necessarily of the time period that maybe came before or after the the time period of the movie but that still worked well in the film and makes you draw other other connections emotional or psychological or historical and I think that he's doing that here he's using so much of this music as texture as as a, as emotional ballast in this movie and that's one of the things that he is that he is so good at this so many people try and aren't able to do because, as you say, he's not picking the song because he thinks it's going to be popular on a soundtrack. It's kind of crazy that they released a soundtrack anyway, although I guess every movie in the 90s did, but that he's using the music because it it matches or undercuts the tone of the emotion or the or the story beat in the scene that he's that he's trying to convey and that's I think what makes his his soundtrack stand out so much.
1: So we're in Hell Red Red Wine is playing and we find out that like there was sort of a bit of a chaotic scene sigh the the drug dealer sort of the devil himself tried to jump from his balcony down below to escape someone who came in firing he slipped and fell, and I sort of got a little bit of a flashback to The Rock. That we just yeah. see a guy impaled on a spike, but unlike the guy on The Rock, who was not only shot out of a building with a rocket, but impaled on a huge spike, Psy <laughs> lives here. The paramedics sort of buckle in, cage to the wall, and he holds on, and they're able to rescue him and bring him back. It's kind of weirdly fitting, maybe. He, he sort of downplays it. But Sai is like, no, like, realize that, like, you saved my life. Not only did he get him off the pole that he was that he was impaled upon, but he held on to him and kept him from falling off the edge off the 14th floor. It's kind of weirdly fitting that, like, the man that Cage sort of had to save was kind of the devil, was kind of his opposite. It's just oddly fitting, I think. It's
2: totally true, and it's a be- sort of a beautiful moment where the drug kingpin can't hold his head up, right? He's 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 impaled on the spike, dangling over this balcony, and he says, I can't hold my head up anymore. It's such a human moment where he asks Cage to hold his head, and Cage does. He leans out and he cups his head in his hands. And it's 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 more religious imagery, it's more this compassion for your fellow man kind of thing. But that's one of the things that separates this kind of moment from I'm not singling out the rock in particular, but from other movies where this moment would be played for laughs or just kind of for the horror of it, that this is played for the hu the humanity of it. Like you realize, oh my God! I really, it really would hurt. I, I wouldn't be able to hold my to hold my head up. I would tear this hole in me more if I let my head go or whatever. And and that moment of compassion between the two of them, and then the, this little conversation they have, is, is a is a great moment. The, the other thing I have to say that the this reminds me of. I I don't go to the to the Rock. I go to Backdraft. You guys remember Backdraft from '91, which which would have been a movie out at the time. This movie it's actually taking place, and I think it's Robert De Niro's character who gets blown out of a building and lands on a on a fence outside a building impaled almost just like this but this moment and him holding his head in particular really stands out in my mind
0: it's really touching here when frank and Cy realize oh it's you it's you you know (laughs) like i can't believe it's you like what what are the odds of this yeah you're right cage is so compassionate and i feel like everyone else there really doesn't give a shit about Cy. Like, he's just some pimp drug pusher who got what he deserved, right? Like, some younger kids, you know, were trying to take over his turf or something and they came in and gunned him down and they're the real devils. Like, it turns out Cy was just some mid-class demon. They they have this connection that transcends all that. It's just between two people at that moment, you know? And that's what I really like. And, and Cy, he's hurt, he's injured, but he's talking to Frank about, like, how much he loves this city and he loves this town. And, you know, he's going to get back in there and, you know, he's going to survive and all this. So it's just like this very touching moment here (laughs) that I wasn't expecting.
1: And this kind of sets him off on the right trajectory that he finally saved the guy's life. He goes back to the hospital, him getting back into feeling like himself. He sees Mr. Burke again. He sees Patricia Arquette's father, and he still wants to die. And he's, like, I think he sort of realizes that, like, I, I guess it's kind of like accumulation of a lot of things, right? Like the, like the junkie tried to kill himself, people who want to die versus people who don't want to die and i don't know there's like a lot of things going on but i feel like this is kind of a moment of realization he sort of has the power to do something though even though he doesn't do anything yet the seed is kind of planted he has the power to relieve this guy of some of his pain and suffering
2: totally true and right before this i think it's his best scene with mary she says to him i think the city of kill you it's a it's a really low-key quiet scene it's the one where they feel the most connected to each other and to me in, in the movie
0: here i love when he gets back to the hospital and he can still sort of read the father's mind, you know, and they're talking about how they defibbed him 17 times and and Cage makes a joke about it, right? He's like, you know, you should just like send him home with one and they're like, oh, well, we're actually going to implant one in his chest. I feel like, you know, him being able to sort of crack a joke, he's already got it set in his mind. He's detached himself from this guy. Like he's going to help him. And yeah, when he goes to talk to Mary and he's like, yeah, this city just won't discriminate. Like, you could be good, you could be bad, and, like, bad people will live prosperous lives and make millions of dollars, and good people will get murdered on the street for no reason, you know? It's hit or miss out there.
1: (laughs) Before he's able to do something good, before he's able to help this guy out, he just says, I want to break something. He has, like, this great speech about how, like, they're sharks. I think this is kind of another sort of maybe the final example of his coworker like, rubbing off on him, because they're just out riding again. And he's like, we're sharks. We can't stop swimming or we're going to die. I want to break something.
2: Come on, Tom, pick up a job. Well, You want some bum in the bus terminal?
3: We'll wait for a real call. Let's get in a fight then. Who with? That's your job. Just keep driving, keep
2: moving, no stopping. We're sharks. We stop too long, we die. Let's break something, Tom. Let's bust something, let's bomb something. What do you want to break? I don't know.
4: Let's break some windows. Why? Destruction, distraction. I feel the need. You need a reason, Frank. You just don't go around breaking people's windows. That's anarchy. What's the reason, Tom? Give me a reason. All right,
1: let me think. And they see Noel, the homeless guy, Mark Anthony, with a baseball bat, I guess classic New York City in the early 90s, just <laughs> going around breaking car windows. You don't realize this, but like this is ultimately going to lead to Cage's salvation. It's just going to sort of take a really kind of weird path to get there.
0: When he said in the last scene about not discriminating, he won't discriminate now. Like, he just wants to hurt someone, right? Like, he just wants to break something. He doesn't even care. And when they see Noel, this is almost like his friend in a strange kind of way, right? Like, he used to live with Mary, and Mary told him all about Noel, and kind of seems like he would want to help Noel, but, like, he's up for hurting this guy now, and yeah' he's, he's really off the deep end at this point
2: it's an interesting moment too where t- Tom Sizemore tells him the plan to go beat up Noel that <laughs> Tom Sizemore is gonna sneak out of the car because he knows that if Noel sees him he'll run away he's gonna get him on his hands and knees behind Noel and Frank is supposed to then push Noel over Frank says it's the stupidest plan I ever heard but Tom Sizemore's jazz like he has a, he has <laughs> his playmate back you know like he, yep.
5: he
2: and you can see the Looney Tunes way this like literally Looney Tunes way this guy works and he tries to do it. He goes and gets down on his hands and knees behind Noel and uh and nicholas cage can't bring can't bring himself to do it right it's it's a it's a it's a great moment
0: yeah it's tom sizemore comes across like we've seen a couple of these types of characters uh most recently with machine in eight millimeter but he's like this man child you know like he's a little boy at this moment right like he's giddy and it's like oh playtime like you know we shouldn't be trusted with people's (laughs) lives look at us like we're just having fun like everything is a game to this guy and his persona is just crystallized in that moment Like you go back and watch this movie knowing this moment comes up and you're like okay like everything about this guy is like spot on it's just he's just a little kid out there frank is even able to get noel to hand over the baseball bat because like yeah you kind of trust this guy and then frank will take the bat and just turn it on the car and tom size was like dude what are you doing <laughs> you know <laughs> but frank is lost in the moment
1: you're right like tom size was like what are you doing like this is not the plan this is not how normal people behave and noel's like oh no he's here and he goes and runs off and the two of them go chase after them, Tom Sizemore catches up to him and starts beating him up. But, like, at first, instead of finding Noel, Cage finds Rose. It's the most clear, like, face-to-face outside of that dream world where he comes and sort of has to deal with the fact that he wasn't able to save her life.
2: Right, we've been seeing her throughout the movie, and increasingly the more unhinged Frank is feeling, he'll see her turn, someone will, will turn on the street and watch the ambulance go by, and at first it's... It's just some kid in a hoodie, and then it'll it'll be her. It'll be Rose. She'll be revealed, and she's then begun begun to speak more and more to him throughout the movie. And he's he's getting closer and closer to the point where he has to. She's eventually going to tell him to forgive himself. He, no one told him to 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 put himself through all this uh, because of her. We're getting closer and closer to the the resolution of that of that mystery and that sort of subplot for for Frank.
0: I don't know if we talked very much about how she passed away like he was at the end of a shift and she had an asthma attack on the street and they were trying to resuscitate her but he kept putting the pipe in the stomach and missing the lungs i believe and so yeah. she ended up dying i i could see where his guilt comes in because at that moment he's like let me try again let me try again if he hadn't had sort of that complex about him and, and let his partner take over not only would she be alive but even if she died he wouldn't have so much grief about it at this moment it's like he's creating another one of those situations in a sense where it's like you know you're gonna get someone hurt and you know you don't really need to be doing this and it almost feels like she's warning him at that moment to like stop or something i don't know i just get it like she's appearing as a premonition and. To keep him from actually hitting Noel, you know what I'm saying? Like, it saves him from beating Noel, and Tom gets to end up beating him, and it gives Frank a chance to actually save a person.
1: It's like a premonition for a lot of things. Like, it's basically, I guess, at its core, her central purpose is just to get Cage to kind of change his life, almost, right? Stop what he's doing here go back to the hospital and like take care of Mr. Burke everything that's been, that this movie has been building toward take a step back reevaluate and figure out like who you are and what you're doing and like what you can really do to help
2: and also you realize that it's his addiction to saving people that killed her in a way, that's how he feels. Anywhere, how he comes to feel, you know, him wanting that hit of of feeling like he's saved her, that keeps him in the earlier flashback from from letting John Goodman intubate her and 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 put the um the the tube in the right you know into down into her lungs, and he's got to learn that lesson before he goes to do his final act, which is which is coming soon. That it's not just about saving people, right? That's that's not, and you can't do it. <laughs> you can't save people just to save people, just for the rush of saving people. That's not. Um, humane, that's not right. That's not the moral stance here, right? To, to get back to our sort of the Catholicism. That's part of what he's what he's learning from her here or having to face for himself here.
1: It's his ultimate realization that the sort of the culmination of everything, his final act, like you were saying, is to go back, essentially take Mr. Burke off life support. Finally saved someone in Psy. He finally kind of saved someone in Knoll. And in a weird way, he's kind of saving Mr. Burke by just like letting him die.
2: Totally, and there's such—it's such a great moment when he goes up to ICU. The sound is different. It's not. It, this is this is an inverse of the downstairs ER, right? Like it's quiet it's lit differently it's not nearly so harsh the lighting isn't so harsh and the medical personnel aren't such sort of crazy characters and such a great contrast for him then to, to come in sort of, it's a mercy killing right that's what he's that's what he ends up doing here and i love how he just comes in and and you see he's already put i don't know what they're called the little patches on his chest and abdomen where he'll hook up the heart rate monitor to himself as he lets Miss Burke die so the nurse won't know that nobody will know that that he's make sure he's fully dead before he lets anybody know. Like he's he knows coming into the scene he's gonna do that. And that then is Scorsese is reflecting that in the way that the mood of this room feels, I think.
0: Yeah, I almost thought he went to the morgue to be honest with you when he gets off the elevator. Um, (laughs) because of how like Quiet and everything it is. This is like an assisted suicide. I think Kevorkian was kind Kevorkian, of a hot topic yeah. at the time, right? And like this was a big button issue in the nineties and everything. So I had totally forgot this was the way it ended. And it's just done with so much respect, you know? Like it just goes yeah, yeah. to show that the fanatics don't exactly know what they're talking about all the time because this can be done for the right reasons you know and we saw this with shivo the shivo case uh, a couple years ago as well i believe i I just love how it's premeditated and he's a nurse so he knows how to do it secretly you know and it's not quite as eastwood a million dollar baby right like he does it i think he's a little (laughs) more smooth about it but yeah he's doing a lot of saving at this moment it's very it's a very symbolic kill if as strange as that sounds, because he's saving Mr. Burke from this life as a vegetable. He's sort of saving the family from all this worry and grief and having to hold out hope. And he's saving himself by basically realizing you don't have to save everybody all the time. Sometimes you even have to let people go. And that's a big theme, you know, just to let it go.
2: Yeah, you, should, you are, shouldn't save some people. That's what he's learning, is that there's some people that, that should not be, you know, for the right reasons, should not be saved. And it's it's no accident, I think, that this is this one of the calmest most beautiful, quietest
1: moments in the whole film. It's like almost like the lesson learned that he finally has the knowledge that he's able to be the person that he, like, sort of like his best self, and that best self is someone who knows that not everybody needs to be saved all the time. And so he's able to put that to the test and it's sort of like, it is calm and quiet because I guess it's sort of reflective of his inner self. He's finally at peace with himself. He achieves that final peace in the, in the next, in the final scene where he goes to tell Patricia Arquette, like, what happened. it's He's talking to her, but he's also talking to Rose. It's quiet because he's finally, like, accepted he's not God. He's just there to do his best. And if it's not possible to save someone, like, that's not necessarily his fault.
0: That moment when he's talking to Mary and she sort of transforms into Rose and, you know, back to Mary and he's calling her Mary and Rose is answering as, I mean, they're doing, you know, the voice replay. It's, it's, it's like he's having a hallucination, but it's this extremely powerful and cathartic moment for him, you know? Everything is sort of lining up in his mind at this point, I feel, and it's a miracle to me that this character it seems like he's going to be okay.
5: I don't know how he held on as long as he
0: did. I'm sorry. You have to keep the body going. Until the brain and heart recover
5: enough to go on their own. Forgive me, Rose. It's not your fault. No one asked you to suffer. That was your idea.
1: He receives verbal forgiveness from Rose. He might be worried that Patricia Arquette is, like, angry that her father is dead. But it's almost like she's had the time in this film to, like, go through the five stages of grief. And she's not upset that he's gone. She's kind of, like, relieved about it. So he gets these verbal reassurances. And then they go into the apartment, or they go into where Patricia Arquette lives. And she just kind of, like, cradles him as he falls asleep. Unlike the sleep that he got in hell from Psy's pills... This was the sleep that he actually needed. This is the sleep that he deserved, and this is the sleep that he earned.
2: And there's a, an earlier moment in the film where he's where he stayed the night, sleeping off. Uh, he has the drugs, I think, right? When he stays at her apartment and he tells her after that 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 was the best sleep he'd had in forever. He said, and he uses her soap, right? She has three different kinds of soap. It's a great <laughs> little detail. It's, a, it's one of the best details about her that we get in the movie. And and this moment, echoing the one with her father, is another moment of real peace between two people. And I, I sort of love that this is where this movie ends. This movie that is that has been in the you know, in the dirty, grimy streets all along and that has been so dark and so and funny, but but just literally dark ends at this at this another sort of high key lighting moment angel in repose kind of image that i think is is really affecting her
0: yeah, I I love this ending. It's such a nice, quiet ending that the movie sort of deserves, you know? You almost think, like, watching this thing, it's going to end with the hospital exploding or something, like, extreme <laughs> like that. But we end as far away from where we started as possible, you know? We start in the chaos of the street. Now we end in the silence of the apartment. I sent you guys a, a picture comparison, but this yeah. shot of mary holding frank is exactly framed and even down to the color of what they're wearing a shot of madonna holding the baby jesus you know kind of fitting that we're ending on this religious iconography and it looks like cage is gonna sleep like a baby
2: yeah, exactly, and it's it's interesting too. Twenty three years after Taxi Driver, which is is closest in DNA to any film that you know that Scorsese's made for sure, to this movie, you know, for the record, I think that's a better movie. That was a, a much younger man making that movie, and it had a much more cynical ending. And this has a less. This is maybe maybe know, is this a more cynical movie with less cynical ending? I'm not sure, but it feels like a sort of a mature ending for a movie that has been as as, as crazy as this one has. You
1: know, for all that we talked about earlier in terms of Patricia Arquette's character not really having an arc, by the time this movie ends, like, we've been on a journey, Cage has been on this journey, it's kind of the perfect fitting ending for the story that Scorsese told. It's true, it's true, and,
2: and you you know, you want him to find this piece, and this is, I think, part of the thing of having Cage as the actor to play this role. You know from his voiceover that, that he's uh, he's empathetic, right? You, you want this the best for this guy, and it really does feel as though he's founded, and that maybe... You know, now I'm giving now I'm giving the movie too much credit, maybe, but that that, <laughs> that her arc will begin now, or that their arc will begin now, in whatever form that will take. Uh, but I do feel I, emotionally and sort of you know spiritually, this does feel like the right ending for this movie, and I'm glad that he ends at a place where he gets some solace. I think he's you know he's he's earned it. I think.
0: I think that's interesting. It's like the movie ends where it needs to, right? Like he doesn't drag it on just to drag it on. Like he is aware that the story has been told, you know, and it might not. Be- be a very conventional ending to a film or anything like that but you're right it fits the story perfectly and and I'm glad that he's not trying to betray the story by giving you know the people what they want per se or and you know what I mean anything like that like I feel like Scorsese understands what he made you know like he listened to the material he let the material guide him he didn't take control of it and try and wrestle it in any certain direction you know I think we would have felt that go off course uh, at times if that were the case but no like he understands this story guide you. And, and as a
2: screenwriter, I have to, I have to stick up too for, for Paul Schrader. You know, up to this point, has written some some, you know, tr- some classic, classic movies, not just Taxi Driver but Light Sleeper and, you know, I don't want to say a god of American screenwriting, but he's because but he's, I don't want to inflate his ego anymore than maybe it already is, but <laughs> he captured some of the similar things that he did in movies like Taxi Driver to, to give voice to um, a lot of aspects and characters of the city of New York that, that don't otherwise have a voice. And and to do it in a in a you know in a believable way, and as we've said at the beginning, to bring as much structure to this largely episodic movie as it could probably handle, and still have its and still you know be true to itself. And I think that when they're at their best, the collaboration of these two of Scorsese and Trader um, really gets something. It gets at something very particular about masculine desires and dangers, and you know in in the city of New York. And I think that they've that they've accomplished that to a large degree, here, too.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think you just get a great sense that scorsese knows the city right like i mean we all know he grew up there and you know that's what he makes tons of movies about new york but you know it never fails to show that he knows what he's talking about yeah i I just don't think like another director could have done this material the same type of service that he did just just for being a guy who grew up there and has such that type of sensibility you know i get the feeling like he knew ambulance drivers and like he knew the hookers you know growing up and like he knew like the despots on the street, and I could get the sense that maybe he struggled as a young man, you know, like, between compassion and anger towards some of those types of people in the same way that Frank did. So, I just get the sense that he understands kind of what Frank is going through.
1: And I think that's a nice place to end it, that this is sort of almost a biographical picture, in a sense, for Scorsese, even though it's adapted from a book. Anything else either of you want to talk about?
2: The only thing that I wanted to mention was the thing that this got me thinking of were the Scorsese-Cage collaborations that could have happened but didn't. Like I try to think of the, are there other other Scorsese movies that Cage would have been good or great in, you know. And I and I think about some of the well before this, I think he could have, he could have been in Cape Fear. I think I think uh, I think he would have been it would have been interesting in either role, quite frankly, in that. And uh, sadly, what you're going to get is Trespass before too long, right? Uh, <laughs> but you know, he I think he could have been a Bill the Butcher. I, I um maybe in in New York. And in another stage of his life, he probably could have been the Aviator. But the one that jumped out to me was um, Shutter Island. I think he would have been great in that lead role in Shutter Island.
0: That would have been good. I could have seen him somewhere in Casino as well, you know, in Vegas. He, he, he's he been in Vegas so Holy. much. It's, it's almost a miracle he wasn't in Casino to some degree. Plus, he fits so well in any decade. I would have loved to have seen him in those uh, types of clothes, you know, like wearing the That's suits and the sunglasses that De Niro gets to sport.
1: Although I guess if he was in Casino, he would have been in two Las Vegas movies in one year, that and leaving Las Vegas. And so maybe that was too much for him. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, to answer your question... I would like to see him in everything, so I mean, I, I don't know if they necessarily have a, uh, like a great example of you know a movie, but like I like that we've seen him work with like some of the biggest and the best directors, like we've seen him work with David Lynch, we've seen him work with the Coen brothers, we've seen him work with Scorsese, we're seeing him hit on the greatest or the most interesting directors, and I'm glad that even if Cage was only in this one movie for Scorsese, that at least we got him in this movie.
0: I'm actually surprised it took him this long to sort of get up with Scorsese, uh, just because uh, like his uncle and Scorsese go way back. You know, Coppola and Scorsese, longtime pals in the film industry and everything. So I almost, and uh, thinking about it now, I'm I'm kind of surprised he wasn't in a Scorsese film earlier. I'm glad we at least got this one. Yeah, like the Cotton Club is essentially like
1: an audition tape for Scorsese. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he
0: has a a Scorsese death in that movie, right? He gets riddled in a phone booth.
1: (laughs) It took a while. It took. 15 years from there to get to here but we're here we got the scorsese cage mashup the partnership the team up and it's great i would definitely recommend watching this movie i think both of you probably would too so tobin thank you for joining us thank you for helping us close out the 20th century this is the last movie that cage did in the 90s so we next movie we are into the 2000s and into sort of a new era for cage so thank you for being here
2: my pleasure, guys. Thanks and thanks for the opportunity to see this one again. I'm really glad I revisited it because I got I got a lot more out of it. This is fun. This is this I love this podcast. I can't wait to hear uh, what comes next.
1: For all sorts of cage club things, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for the film, find past podcasts. You can see how to follow us on Twitter to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. All your Nicholas Cage needs over at CageClub.main. I'm Joey Lewandowski.
0: And I'm Mike Manzi.
1: And that's Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club.
4: Who are you? I am the Japanese Japanese Sandman.
5: You look like a Japanese Sandman.
4: I go the Ragtag King, the Ragtag King, the